You're listening to 3CR Radio. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, we chat with filmmakers Caroline Late and Kathy Sport. 3CR. Well, in 2018, the LGBTIQ inclusive Rainbow Beach stairs at Rainbow Beach in Queensland were painted with graffiti, sparking divisions within the local community. Caroline Late is a journalist and filmmaker whose documentary explores the controversial events that unfolded, and I spoke with her this week. So the stairs, they were painted uh, by Team Rainbow, who's a fully inclusive sporting organisation, and uh, that was done in conjunction with the 2018 Gold Coast Commonwealth Games Pride House. So it was fantastic that they got the uh, funding from the Palaszczuk government to do all that. And, uh, yeah, so they painted those stairs. Unfortunately, someone's come in and um, graffitied them, and then the message got lost um, as as um, the town became aware of the stairs, and they became a bit of a uh, showpiece for people to go visit. So, yeah, that and that's where it sort of um, got to. So the local media was sort of covering it more the graffiti angle, which the, the graffiti tag was How Good Is Living, and they sort of erased the Team Rainbow message. So I, my documentary was sort of covering that, and a little bit of an injustice that, that I thought um, that Team Rainbow was totally erased. So was there homophobia behind the defacing? Well, the, the, the actual person who did the graffiti um, was actually was a um, lesbian lady, so... She said the message for her was more about she had a partner who um, who had cancer and died from cancer, so it was more about supporting that. But, um, yeah, and then there was some conflicting between the local businesses that were aligned with Team Rainbow and the businesses that were aligned with Rainbow Beach Tourism and Commerce. So it, it sort of, um, there became sort of a, a divisive line between that. To what extent did this issue kind of take on a life of its own? Well, I think, um, you know... <sighs> There was, a, there was a fair bit of hostility from um, uh, from from the uh, Rainbow Beach uh, Commerce and Tourism. They sort of didn't want to include um, <coughs> Team Rainbow or give affirmation that they actually had permission to paint the stairs. So the councillor said, yes, go and paint them. That's a great idea. And um, Anne-Marie Laversgrim, who was the uh, team secretary um, president, had copies of those emails and it bas- they basically um, they basically backtracked and said, well, we didn't give permission when there was email trail that said, yes, we did. And um, so I-, I think that's where... So then, therefore, it became a subject matter where they didn't have permission. Also, the graffiti people who... The people who graffitied the How Good Is Living message on there also didn't have permission. So it became sort of a, a little bit of a... Um, a war on the fact that neither had permission, even though Team Rainbow did get permission via email. And it just sort of uh, snowballed into the fact that a lot... Of, and then the local media was supporting the How Good Is Living message and, and the graffiti tag. So then the whole Team Rainbow message just was just erased. So And that was in affirmation of the Gold Coast, you know, Commonwealth Games Pride House. So... Um, you know, so that all got erased, and then local people were saying, well, we don't want a legacy to um, the Gold Coast Commonwealth Games. That's not a local issue for us, you know. So it was, um, yeah, it was quite, it was quite, as I said, what was a, a simple process became quite complex in nature. And very convoluted. It sounds like it got highly politicised if the local council was involved. Yes, they were. And, um, look, I was, I was one hour away from... Um, interviewing that local that local um uh councillor mark mcdonald and he was told by council not to be interviewed by me and then i sent them off a, a, a lot of questions and they they basically um didn't answer those questions at all so i, I never really got a, a right a response but in saying that council down the track they um they put out a survey and the local people just wanted um rainbow beach queensland put on the stairs and that seemed to be a good, um, a good, uh, you know, I suppose, solution. Um, and, you know, but I, for me, I wanted Team Rainbow recognised because they did the work. They, they got the artists up from the Gold Coast to do it because none of the local artists would paint it. And um, I wanted the message out there that it was actually Team Rainbow who 
um, painted those stairs because I just felt their whole um, inclusive and loving message had been um, totally erased and I just felt that was that was a little bit unfair. 3CR. Look, the local the local press were quite uh, on board at first, and um, and then you know it sort of all just turned um, sort of on a dime, and then it um, it sort of changed, became a little bit um, divisive and a little bit um, I don't want to say nasty, but a little bit you know um, competing interests, I suppose. It sounds totally toxic. To what extent was this debate a hangover from the marriage equality debate, which, of course, was 2017, culminating in the vote? Well, it's interesting you say that because in my film, I've said, you know, like 55% of White Bay, which is that area, voted for marriage equality. So I think it probably is a hangover, and I think it's a pushback, and I think we're seeing that a lot in politics and a lot in... um, Globally and even locally, locally here in Australia, but also globally, and we even saw that with Donald Trump coming to power, and now you know, uh, and I think all that is pushback against you know people not wanting to accept LGBT um, and queer people, you know, and not not saying all people want to don't want to accept, but unfortunately we had to go through that because you're always going to get those type of people that don't think that we have equal rights. Um, so I think there's a little bit of pushback there, but I now think um, we're, we're starting to level out. And that's what's happened with council, because they put a survey out. And I think, you know, the survey was that they wanted Rainbow Beach Queensland on there. And, you know, so I, I think it's that sort of come full circle. So I think there was pushback definitely from the the uh, marriage equality. And even one uh, um, there was one fellow who I've documented in the film that said, burn that sissy flag. And he got local um, citizen of the year up there that year. So, which is quite interesting, and I've documented that in the film too, because um, that was on his um, Facebook page. To what extent did the Liberal National Party, the LNP, have their fingerprints on this issue, on this debate? Oh yeah, it was all there. Um, all there. Uh, pretty much, um, those people involved were pretty much um, LNP members and supporters. So, <laughs> I think their fingerprints are pretty much all over it. <laughs> So, sorry, I don't mean to laugh. Um, as you can see in my film, there's a little bit of our sarcasm there and my sense of humour comes through in the film. So, um, you know, with the crickets, I've got um, chirping and the disco music going. So I think, um, you know, if, I'm hoping it, it gets accepted into the Queer Film Festival. So, um, you know, I think people will enjoy it and like it. <laughs> I think yeah. a bit of pushback's really important with an issue like this and a bit of humour uh, because the Definitely. stakes sound pretty high in the local in the local community there. Uh, how did it affect the local queer community? It must have been pretty tough on them. Well, they're not very visible up there. I interviewed um, Z Parks, who's a non-binary person, and um, they were in charge of the Gimpy Rainbow Group up there, and they're not all that visible in the community. Um, and uh, I think uh, it actually, what happened, um, they actually thought that the How Good Is Living message and the Rainbow Stairs was part of a, an LGBT inclusive message, and then when they found out it, it was sort of hijacking, they were like really disappointed. But um, I think hopefully, I'm hoping the film brings some visibility that, that it's okay for people to be, um, you know, gay, um, lesbian, you know, bi or trans or, or queer or, or, you know, non-binary. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm hoping that we'll, we'll trade off on that. But, um, yeah, I think they were just really disappointed when they found out that, that the How Good Living in How Good Is Living message actually wasn't, you know, a LGBT inclusive message. And, and that's another thing I, I sort of wanted to spend more time on the film and sort of go onto a bit of a tangent how it's also it's also like um feminine qualities are put down, you know, so it's almost like um like gay men and trans women and that cannot survive in a place like that. So toxic masculinity was an underlying issue here. Well, pretty much. Yeah, toxic masculinity, um, you know, and, and look, um, I, I did have, I have a longer cut and unfortunately I got sidetracked with the um, World Rugby, the World Rugby band because I'm, as you know, I'm a former trans woman rugby player. Um, I won't go on to that, but got hijacked a little bit with that when that all came out when I was sort of finishing off. So I, I probably would like to do a follow-up, but maybe not so much with the Rainbow Stairs, of course, to be mentioned, but more in regional areas and how... Um, 
femininity and how um, people still in this day and age have to know their place. So uh, uh, by those people's rhetoric, not by, you know, ours. And um, I'd like to sort of um, investigate that in, a, in another follow-up I'd like to do to this film. So um, I was hoping to include it in this one, but I, I sort of stuck to the stairs because I sort of ran out of time. But I'm really happy with what, what we came up with in the end anyway. But I, I just think um, as far as, you know, feminine qualities are put down and, you know, like, don't be a girl, don't be a sook, don't be, you know... And, and if, if someone's male, you know, then they've got to follow those rigid rules and um you know society plays out and and uh, you know i just like to see that that change over time so um and as a trans woman i was affected by that at, at an all-male boarding school you know and i had to, i had to hyper masculinize myself to survive and a lot of people have had to do that and then you sort of when you get to your middle age you, you sort of wonder well, what was that for <laughs> Absolutely. So how is this issue washed up in the local community? Uh, are those divisions still there? Has the community healed in some ways? Uh, how's the local queer community travelling after all of this? Where's it all at? Um, I think the local community, I mean, it's probably still divided. I was speaking to Dr. Daryl Gould, who features quite heavily in this um, documentary um, from Team Rainbow, and he sort of said they're, they've... It's, it's sort of becoming a more progressive place, so over time that should happen. And, and look, they're only a couple of hours from Maroochydore, which is, is, is you know, becoming, which is quite a progressive, like, I suppose it's a regional city now and quite a big one. You know, it, it, it makes sense that eventually that a, a town like Rainbow Beach will become more progressive and more inclusive of people. Um, and the local, I think the local gay community, I know they're, they're very happy with it. Like, um, I know Z Parks, um, my, my non-binary friend who, who, um, who set up or was, who was, um, running that, that, um, that group, that, that, um, that queer group up there. Um, they're very happy with, um, and they were featured in the film. They were, they were very happy with what they saw. So I, I think that's filtered back and they're very happy that they've actually got a voice and it's not just, you know, same old. So I think um, as, far in here, as far as healing with the, some of these local businesses and, you know, there probably will be a division there for a while, but hopefully in time then they can um, unite and, you know, uh, ho- I'm, I'm hoping down the track, you know, um, the vision and that disappears over time. You know, like as people become more... It's, it's basically key. Education's key, as we know. And that, you know... Sorry, my dog is just barking in the background. He's being a bad sport. But um, I'm hoping that, you know, th- this... You know, it, it just they just become um, more united. And as I said, education's key. So if we can get education up there... And that's getting into schools and things like that. So I'd love to have your Victorian safe schools up there and that could make a difference too. So, yeah. 3CR. You're listening to an interview with documentary filmmaker and journalist Caroline Late on 3CRs in your face. You mentioned before that you're a former elite athlete, a former elite rugby player. Uh, you've also, of course, become a sports journalist focusing on gender diversity in trans sport. Uh, how is trans sport journalism received by the mainstream industry? What barriers have you faced, if any? Um, it's not great. Um, you know, like, uh, uh, look, I've actually, well, I've actually written for the Herald. That was great to get that, and that was about the trans woman rugby ban, and that was from my own personal perspective. So it was an opinion piece, and that's about the world rugby ban. But so I, I suppose there is an appetite there. So, but it's still hard to, um, for me to become a mainstream journalist is pretty hard, like um, as a trans woman. But as far as um, getting those pieces, I think um, I still, like I'm writing for Jesse Jones's um, Pink Advocate and I'm doing some contributing pieces there, which, which are great. And, um, but I still think we've probably got a fair way to go before we, we get into the mainstream, but we've just got to keep on chipping away. So, um, because, you know, I'd like to see... Um, trans, you know, trans children, you know, they have role models and that the people have done it before and we're not so much a raise. So I'm hoping that down the track that it does improve. And, and that's another thing that's just going to take time. So it's, it's not great, but it's getting better slowly as we get more visibility and people like myself. So if any trans people out there want to become journalists, I'd say do it because it, it's well worth um the effort and I think down the track I'm hoping that one day we're just seen as normal people by um, 
people on the probably conservative side of um, politics. We've seen a, a real shift in sports policy around Australia about gender diversity. To what extent do you think sporting bodies have kind of, you know, pushed back against people's, like the Prime Minister's comments when Cricket Australia put their inclusion policy in? Oh, I think, um, well, the sporting bodies pushing back against um, uh, Morrison and his comments is fantastic because I think a lot of these sporting bodies see trans people as people and we're not um we're not the ideology that people people talk about trans rights and this and that they tend to talk about us as ideologies and things like that but we're actually people (laughs) first so i think the sporting pushback has been great against people like um morrison and people who have a similar mindset of um you know not including us so um i'm hoping that um down the track that you know Trans people can just play, and it's and it's not not a not a problem. So um, I hope that answers the second part of the question. Um, you know, and as for Morrison and that, hopefully um, he will. You know, um, the pushback that those people give. Hopefully, that all I can say is hopefully they educate themselves and one day come around and accept us as the people we are. Maybe do some research and understand that we're just normal people. You know, the garbage bin still has to go out at night and. You know, um, we still have to cook dinner and we just do the normal things that um, we that other people do. And being trans is just a very little small part of, of, of us as people, you know, like, and um, one day it'd be nice that it's just not an issue. So I hope that answers that question. Absolutely. Caroline Late, it's always a great pleasure chatting with you on 3CR. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me, James. 
So you're listening to 3CR 855 AM Community Radio, and we just want to say support your local radio station. Way, hey, and away we go. Donkey riding, donkey riding. Way, hey, and away we go. Riding on a donkey. Azure Ray with If You Fall. 3CR. And please be advised there is a trigger warning. This interview includes discussion about transphobia and issues that some listeners may find distressing. Well, Kathy Sport is a filmmaker whose documentary about Vivian explores the life of gender diverse World War II soldier Walter Lee. Kathy is fundraising to have the historic film digitalised, and I spoke with her this week. So About Vivian is a um, short 40-minute documentary film that I made uh, 20 years ago. So this year is the 20th anniversary of the making of the film. And um, I made it um, at the University of Technology in Sydney uh, when I was a student. And initially I wanted, to be perfectly honest, I wanted to um, make a documentary about lesbians and lesbian life in the 1950s but it was very very hard to find uh, willing participants to appear on camera so I shifted my parameters broadened and advertised and one day um, Walter answered my ad and I spoke to him on the telephone and that's how it started so this is a story about Walter's life, Walter Lee, who um, was born in 1926 and um, 
joined the army, joined the army for the Second World War. And there's a story there about his um, discharge. But perhaps before we go down that track, um, I should just stop and, and talk a little bit about the fact that this is a story about early trans and drag during the 1940s in Australia. Obviously, I made this film 20 years ago and our understanding about transsexuality, trans, um, even sexuality and and drag as well uh, was different to how it is in the present day. So I was learning and Walter was my teacher uh, around drag and transsexuality 20 years ago. And um, so now... A trans person might identify and use use a specific pronouns uh, such as uh, he, she, they. Back twenty years ago, those kind of um, that type of language wasn't used, and and Walter introduced himself as he to me, and throughout the making of the film, the pronouns that we used uh, reflected the time of twenty years ago. So. When I talk about this film, I, I don't use, I tend to use the historical language and the historical pronouns rather than the present day because when I met Walter, um, that's how he introduced himself and that's how he identified, even though there were times in his life when he was Vivian. But I met him as Walter. He was 73 when I met him. And he passed away in, in 2005, so he would have been 94 this year. Um, so, so I guess there's a, there's a, um, a moment of reflection there about how things have changed over the last 20 years since I made this film and also then to respect the history that Walter and, and Vivian uh, lived during the 1940s when Walter was coming into his sexuality and discovering his identity and uh, as Vivian. Um, I hope that explains a little bit about um, why I'm a bit self-aware and self-conscious about the present-day use and, uh, and the way we talk about transsexuality and then how I talked about it 20 years ago when I made a film and then how trans was understood and talked about in the 1940s. So there's a real sort of trajectory there about how things have changed over time. And I guess um, I want to be respectful of the history, but also I want to just uh, honour the making of the film and what was happening at that time. Absolutely. And it sounds like the film really is, you know, a wonderful historical picture yeah well in fact the film it, it is a, a short film and so um i just selected um the early days so the war years and then the story about coming into his um or discovering vivian being called vivian and then the the um the consequences of his of being thrown out of home when his mother discovered the picture in the newspaper. Yes. Tell us about Vivian's story and what happened in the 40s. So, yeah. So I was just reminding myself back in the 40s, um, there there was a compulsory uh, program that was introduced for men under the age or unmarried men um, under the age of 21 or at the age of 21 um, having to sign up for the war or for military training in the CMF. And that's how Walter uh, found himself called up to go and uh, join the army. He'd already had a taste of life in Sydney and he'd met a few um, men in Sydney. But when he, it was when he, he joined the army, like he hadn't actually been uh, exposed to very much drag or he, he didn't understand the word transsexuality. In fact, he'd never heard the word transsexuality used before and he didn't hear about that during the army. But when he was in the army, he did some CMF training for a couple of months 
and then um, signed up with the AIF and was uh, sent. Originally, he was supposed to go to Papua New Guinea, but he ended up going to Japan. So it was after the war, the war had ended. So it was the Allied uh, occupation of Japan and he went with the AIF uh, to Japan and spent um, over a year in Japan. And it was at the concert parties put on by the Australian Army that that's where he um, saw concert parties with female impersonators and quick as a flash, he was backstage introducing himself to the female impersonators and they got him to try on a dress and a wig and so he looked in the mirror and discovered Vivian. That was really the early um, days of him discovering the person that he wanted to be and that was quite a revelation for him. So he, when he when I did an interview with him, and I, I should also stop and say when I was making the film, he didn't want to be photographed and he didn't want to be filmed. It, it took a long time for him to trust. So um, there was, you know, and I unfortunately didn't have a lot of time. I had a, a, a time frame, a, a deadline to work to. So unfortunately... Um, uh, you, you know, some of the elements about his story I only discovered much later on. So that was a complication of making the film. But back to um, uh, Vivian's story, it was, you know, when when I eventually, um, like I actually shot the film and eventually did the interview many months later when he finally trusted me a bit and understood that people might be interested in his story. And that was an interesting sort of filmmaking story in itself. Um, but he said when we finally did an interview that he was always sissy, you know, they used the word sissified. So he said that he used to swish when he walked. And, of course, when he joined the army, um, you know, you, you put on your boots and you didn't, you weren't supposed to swish. <laughs> so he said that he never really fitted into the army. But, um, and, you know, he was put in the in a he gave he was given a a medical he worked in the in, in the hospital in the hospital ward and um and that was his role in the army um but then when he saw the, the went to the concert and saw the female impersonators as they were called then um and he became friendly with them and that really changed his life um so he came back to Australia. He was medically discharged. You know, he started dressing in women's clothes when he was in Japan and one day he was caught in the markets dressing in women's clothes and he was pretty summarily discharged. And it was during the discharge the doctor examining him used the word transsexual and said that he had a neurosis and he didn't understand, he'd never heard these words before and he didn't really understand what the doctor was talking about. Um, so he was medically discharged, came back to Sydney and was scared and frightened. In fact, he said to me that when, when the doctor said that he was a transsexual, he thought he might die because he didn't understand what he was talking about. So that was really interesting um, and I think there was a lot of shame for him there. Um, but he came back to Sydney and uh, went back home. He was born in Lismore, so he, he went back home and was living with his mother and father. And he was got a job working in the factory where the same factory where his mother was working. So um, that was all going well. But then he went to a um, a party, and uh, there was a Truth newspaper journalist snuck into the party and took a photograph and uh, secretly kept the film and then the next minute um, this photograph of uh, Vivian, like Walter in dressed as Vivian, um, dancing with a sailor, appeared, was splashed all over the, the uh, Truth newspaper and his mother saw the, news, saw the photograph in the newspaper and... Um, basically kicked him out of home and he lost his job, got kicked out of home and that really broke his family relationships, unfortunately. They, his, he never really talked to his mother for 
for at least another 10 years um, and she really rejected him. It was very sad and stressful. Mm. It must have had a terrible impact on, on their mental health and also plummeted them into a life of, of, of poverty. It just sounds horrific. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So, um, so yes, he was kicked out of home, really scared that his father would beat him up, but he just went. He was actually secretly stashing Vivian's clothes underneath the house in a, in a bag, and so he went and grabbed the bag of Vivian's clothes and left home and... Um, got, you know, found refuge and really because he lost his job and was homeless, he really didn't know what to do. So he found his way to Sydney and um, one of the things that I sadly was really unable to um, cover in the in the documentary because it was really, as I said, it was a short documentary and, and it took a very, very long time for, for Walter Vivian to tell me all of the story. But um, so I learned uh, much later on that he actually found his way to Sydney and um, found his way to a beat in Hyde Park. So Hyde Park in Sydney was a well-known beat and he uh, became a working girl. So Vivian became a working girl. And that's something that I don't, I couldn't get around to talking about in the film. But um, if I was to do a sequel and a follow-up, um, that's something that would be interesting to talk about in more detail because life was very, very hard and they used to get bashed a lot. So, um, you know, there's a lot of hardship there um, as well as trying to find some happiness. And I guess Vivian found happiness. Um, like he had part-time jobs, he was working on the trams, um, working girl, you know, Money was hard, hard to come by. Um, so that meant that saving up for a dress was very, very special. And that was back in the days when the Trocadero nightclub was um, all the rage in Sydney, in George Street in Sydney. And uh, Vivian managed to save up and bought the most beautiful tulle, pink tulle dress and... Um, actually caught the tram to the Trocadero and then when he got there he told everybody that he'd gone by cab. <laughs> so he just kind of waltzed in as Vivian and, and had the photograph taken on this, had this beautiful round buffet in the foyer of the Trocadero nightclub and there's a beautiful photograph of, of Vivian sitting on, on the buffet and, um, you know, danced the night away at the Trocadero nightclub. And really that was a fantasy, so there was a bit of a gap, I suppose, between the fantasy and some of the realities, and I think the realities were quite tough. But there were also dreamy moments of really, you know, enjoying life as Vivian and dressed to the nines, which was just gorgeous. 3CR. You're listening to an interview with About Vivian documentary filmmaker Kathy Sport on three CRs in your face. How did you encapsulate Vivian's story in a 14-minute short film? It must have been very challenging to do that. It was, and because um, Walter um, didn't want to be filmed, and there is a story there. So when I, um, so, so I used, to answer your question directly before I get to the other story, um, I used, I had to use a dramatic reenactments and archival footage and um and that's partly why i'm running a fundraiser at the moment so i i researched i went to the australian war memorial and the national film and sound archive and i found um, beautiful uh, archival footage of um one of the concert parties uh that the army used to put on with with the female impersonators they were quite fantastic concerts actually um and so I found archival footage and I did a lot of dramatic reenactments. And uh, Nori, whom people may uh, well know, um, came on and uh, acted the uh, role of Vivian, which was uh, brilliant. And so I got, uh, you know, I managed to gather together a 
tasked to do or to tell the army story. So we did dramatic reenactments, which was beautiful, and it was shot on 16mm film. I was very dedicated 20 years ago to shoot on 16mm film in black and white to reflect, to respect the history and reflect the history as well. So it's got that beautiful um, old-time look to it. And how poetic having Nori involved in the film. Of course, they're a pioneering trans activist. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. Yes, and, and, and that was 20 years ago before um, Nori launched um, the campaign for uh, birth certificates, yeah. Uh, so, you know, it was very, you know, I made the film um, a long time ago, so understandings were very different back then, um, but it was just brilliant and Nori really enjoyed um, dressing but also playing the other role, so the masculine and the feminine, and played both of those roles beautifully. So a real tribute to the duality of Walter slash Vivian. Absolutely, absolutely. And I guess that's why I I always talk about Walter slash Vivian. Um, And at the time it was he, she rather than they, even though now we might say they. But so going back to... um, Walter's story so when I met Walter uh, he was 73 and unfortunately he died five years later Um, and so when I met him unbeknownst to me he was really saying goodbye to Vivian and I think that there's an interesting another interesting story which I didn't really get a chance to talk about in the film about um, what that latter part of his life that he was going through when I met him, which was um, really a lot of shame about his elderly years and how he wanted to die. He was really thinking about the way that he wanted to die and sadly he made a decision to say goodbye to Vivian at that point in his life. Mm. So you really tapped into and really experienced Uh, what it's like for so many trans people perhaps in their elderly years and uh, the difficulties they experience. So many difficulties. And and he said to me one day that um, off camera, we didn't record this conversation, but he said that he, you know, there was so much shame about being potentially discovered, you know, that in inverted commas, you know, as Vivian. And he he didn't want that duality on his death. So because he'd had... Uh, so many troubles throughout his life. There's a huge amount of trauma that they experienced. Yes, trauma, shame, and and also he'd lost many friends along the way. So, you know, he'd reeled off um, several friends who'd all passed away. Um, so, but yes, I think a lot of trauma. So tell us about your fundraiser and why the film needs to be restored. Okay, well, um, I made this film in, uh, it was shot in 1999, finished um, in 2000. And actually it did uh, win a couple of awards back then. It won an award at the Queer Screen Festival in Sydney, Queer Screen uh, Sydney, and it also uh, won an award at the Melbourne Queer Screen Festival, which was fantastic. It also screened overseas, which is brilliant. Um, But it was made... As I said, I was dedicated to uh, shooting it on film and it was just before the big switch to digital. So I made VHS copies but only a couple exist now and I never did make a high-quality um, copy of the film. I never digitised it. So um, and also one of the other things is, of course, I ran out of money for paying all the copyright on the archival footage. So it has really limited its um, viewing uh, and accessibility is viewing possibilities and its accessibility. So for those reasons, um, it's just kind of sat on the back burner in a bit of a too hard basket. Um, but now I've realised that people w- might be interested in the film and also things have really changed over time. So now I can see that what's happened is I, I think that historical value does come around but also our interest in early trans stories has really grown over time. So I think now there's a possibility of reaching new new audiences, which would be absolutely brilliant. Absolutely. It's a wonderfully historical film 
and uh, it sounds like it really needs to be screened in film festivals, especially queer film festivals. Yes, and, and I actually have, uh, funny you should mention that I have actually just approached um, Queer Screen and the um, Melbourne Queer Screen um, festivals to um, ask if they might be interested in the retrospective. Fantastic. So if people actually want to make a donation and help restore this wonderfully historic documentary, uh, what can they do? They can head over to the Possible platform. If people hadn't haven't heard about Possible, it's um, P-O-Z-I-B-L-E, um, and they've got a brilliant uh, platform for um, arts and film and video fundraising, um, plat- um, you know, uh, crowdfund fundraising schemes or programs campaigns. Um, so just head over to to Possible. Um, you can even do it on your mobile phone. And um, search in, hit explore and search in the film and video or just type in about Vivian Restoration Campaign and um, you'll find it there. I haven't, I haven't been able to um, make a dedicated uh, website for it so people just can see all of the information there and a little snippet from the film is there on the possible page. Kathy, it's a wonderful film. It really does need to be restored. Uh, It's got huge historical influence. There can't be many uh, documentaries like it in the world. Thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. It's a pleasure. 3CR.
Jack Jackson there. Go deep. We also heard from the Cranberries with Pretty. I'm out of here. Jacob's up next for the Friday rave. Taking us as Newton with Sky High. We'll catch you next week on In Your Face.
In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.